Crime Happens contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Happens, where we uncover the evil that surrounds us. I'm your host, Chris. This is the story of two young women who were viciously attacked in their own home in the early morning hours of July 19, 2009. Only one of them would survive. Out of respect and privacy, the real names of sexual assault victims are often not used in the media or other publications, but after the trial, Jennifer Hopper went public, publishing an essay titled, I Would Like You to Know My Name. Based on that, I'm going to go ahead and use her real name in this episode. In her essay, she writes, quote, My family calls me Jenny, my friends call me Jen, and my late partner, Teresa Butts, often called me J-Hop, unquote. Since I am none of those things, I will use Jennifer Hopper instead of a nickname. I will also include the link to her essay in the show notes. The intruder of this sweet little South Park home was Isaiah Calibu, a young man with a long history of mental illness. Despite being mentally ill, the court still found Calibu competent to stand trial, although the death penalty was taken off the table. A lot has been written about the fact that Calibu had a difficult upbringing, was mentally ill, and fell through the cracks of the legal and mental health systems. Maybe it was these events and these missteps that act like the sun shining through a magnifying glass and the burning grass in that beam of hot sunlight being created are his family, friends, and anyone else who happens to cross his path. I understand that Caleb had a terribly abusive childhood. I understand that he didn't get the help he needed for his mental health issues, but I have a really hard time understanding the cruel, heartless savagery that this man unleashed on these two women. The physical and mental torture that he inflicted upon them makes it almost impossible for me to feel any compassion for him, no matter how deep I dig. For now, I will have to leave that understanding to those more qualified and to people like Eli Sanders who has done extensive research. Eli Sanders, 38, is the associate editor of The Stranger, an alternative bi-weekly newspaper in Seattle, Washington. Sanders won a Pulitzer in feature writing in 2012 for his feature, Bravest Woman in Seattle, which covered the court proceedings and overall story of the murder of Teresa Butts and attempted murder of her partner, Jennifer Hopper. Sanders provides incredible detail and insight in his reporting, which is why he won the Pulitzer. Sanders actually brought Jennifer Hopper with him to New York when he collected the Pulitzer from Columbia University. He then went on to write the book, While the City Slept, where he tells the entire story from all perspectives, including Isaiah Calabu's. Jennifer Hopper and Teresa Butts are two women who should have gone on to live long, happy lives together. They should have grown old together. But 
Isaiah Calebu's actions made sure that was never going to happen. Teresa Butts, at 39, was a downtown Seattle property manager and a volunteer board member for a group devoted to helping the homeless. The old phrase, no good deed goes unpunished, comes to mind. She was from St. Louis and was raised in a large, boisterous musical family. Her brother was a Broadway star and her parents devoted Catholics. Despite the fact that her parents struggled to understand her sexual orientation, they and all her family loved her deeply. Jennifer Hopper was 38 at the time of the trial in 2011. Hopper was originally from New Mexico. She was raised by her single mom and her grandparents in Seattle. Singing was an activity that brought her a great deal of joy and peace. She actually dreamt of going to Broadway someday. Although that dream didn't come true, she continues to perform and sing. Along with Teresa's brother, she helped to form an organization called the Angel Band Project. Their goal is to help others heal from sexual violence through music. Jennifer Hopper and Teresa Butts were very much in love. They had finally found each other, and life was good. They were content. They wanted to get married, but same-sex marriage wasn't legal in Washington State yet. Instead, they were planning a commitment ceremony, which happily involved a wedding dress fitting, among other things. Teresa was the ninth of 11 children, and Jennifer and Teresa wanted to have children of their own as well. Isaiah M. Calebu was born August 1, 1985, and was 23 years old at the time of his attack on Jennifer Hopper and Teresa Butts in South Park, Seattle. Calebu's father was abusive, and schizophrenia ran in his mother's family. Calebu was living with his mother in Burien, Washington, which is in King County. Burien is just a few short miles away from the Seattle International Airport and from the South Park neighborhood where he attacked Teresa Butts and Jennifer Hopper in their home. Calebu's mother was struggling with his erratic behavior. He was very menacing and violent towards her, and she was scared of him. He was diagnosed as being bipolar and needed to take medication to manage his condition. But when his mother insisted, he refused. His behavior became more unpredictable and violent over time. He would make death threats towards her, and in one incident he beat her with the metal buckle on the end of a dog leash, and in another he smashed out the windows of her car. As a result of asking him to move out, on March 29, 2008, he threatened her life again. He scared his mother so badly that she grabbed a pair of scissors to protect herself. He ridiculed her for this show of defense and, in turn, showed her the rather large knife he was carrying while he continued to threaten her life. Court documents state he did finally leave, but on his way out, he threatened her by saying, quote, Enjoy your last day on earth. You're gonna die. You're no match for me. Those scissors are no match for me or my dog. Unquote. His mother ended up calling the King County Sheriff's Office and reported the incident. Calebu was charged with domestic violence, felony harassment for the threats against his mother. His aunt, Rachel Calebu, called Mama Ray by the family, was 62 
and she lived in a really nice suburb of Tacoma called University Place in the neighboring Pierce County, which is about an hour's drive southbound on I-5 from his mom's place. University is right at the base of the Narrows Bridge, which crosses the Tacoma Narrows, a strait of the Puget Sound. The Narrows Bridge is a pair of twin suspension bridges which connect the city of Tacoma with the Kitsap Peninsula. These bridges are massive. One bridge going eastbound, the other going westbound, and each one has four lanes. Rachel shared her home with John J.J. Eddie Jones, who was 57, and a former backup quarterback for Joe Namath. His aunt tried to be supportive of Calebu by allowing him to move in with her after his mom kicked him out, but she didn't have any more success helping him than his mother did. While he was living with his aunt, Calebu was arrested for a domestic disturbance. Apparently, his pit bull was terrorizing the neighborhood. The neighbors were really scared and they called the police. Calebu resisted arrest and police needed to use a taser to get him under control. Sadly, his Aunt Rachel actually bailed him out. Within a week of his domestic disturbance arrest, Calebu was back at his aunt's home and he is starting to threaten her life, just like he did with his mom. Her kindness meant nothing to him. Rachel became so frightened and she felt she had no choice when she too asked him to move out. She was so terrified of her own nephew that she filed a restraining order against him. The next day, her house was set on fire. His aunt Rachel and her housemate John J.J. Jones died in that fire. The fire was determined to be arson, and Calebu was a very strong suspect. He was actually brought in for questioning, but he was released due to lack of evidence and has not been charged, to my knowledge. Jennifer Hopper and Teresa Butts were simply enjoying a beautiful summer day in July. They were blissfully content with each other and their life together. They had so much to look forward to. That evening, Butts and Hopper grilled steaks for dinner on the barbecue in their backyard and then ate inside where it was cooler. Sounds like a really nice way to spend a summer evening together. They lived in a neighborhood called South Park. South Park is in the middle of Seattle's industrial area, which has left the land and the soil heavily polluted. And it is right next to the Duwamish River, which is filled with toxic chemicals. Because of the location and the pollution, it's not considered a desirable area, and this keeps the property values low. But low property values make buying a home here much more affordable than other areas in Seattle. Unfortunately, you have to take the good with the bad. The particular area of the neighborhood where their house was located was very clean and people took care of their yards. But South Park does have a high poverty and crime rate. Hopper and Butts had a cute little three-bedroom home in South Park and used the front bedroom to sleep in. Hopper used the middle bedroom to keep her things in and the back bedroom was used as a guest bedroom. It was around midnight when they decided to hit the sack. They made sure all the doors were locked before going to bed, but they did leave their windows open. It was such a hot night and they didn't have air conditioning, so the open windows gave them some relief from the heat. When they went to bed that night, lying together there, drifting off to sleep, they never in a million years expected that this would be their last night together. 
Before the night is over, both of these women would be violently brutalized. Jennifer Hopper almost killed and Teresa Butts murdered. A little while after midnight, Hopper woke to find a stranger, a naked man, standing next to their bed with a knife in his hand. He was a black man with short hair and a slender, muscular build. The young man was Isaiah Calibu. Before Hopper could react, Calibu pressed the knife to her throat and told her to be quiet. He told her that if she was quiet, he wouldn't hurt her. He just wanted sex. During this exchange, Butts woke up too. Calibu instructed Butts to undress. She tried to dissuade him by telling him that she was on her period, but he told her he didn't care. So Butts did as she was told. As soon as she had her clothes off, Calibu raped her. He then turned to Hopper and told her to remove her clothes, which she did. Calibu then ordered Butts to perform oral sex on Hopper. She only pretended to do this. Then, Calibu started closing the bedroom windows one by one that had been left open by Butts and Hopper. As he moved around the bed, he never let go of the knife and went on to rape Hopper vaginally and anally. After he finished raping Hopper, he ordered Butts to give him oral sex. The entire time, he kept telling them he wasn't there to hurt them, that he just wanted sex, and it would be best if they just did what he asked. Calibu carried a large knife, which was about 12 inches from the top of the handle to the tip of the blade, and the blade itself was about 6 inches long. He used this knife to threaten the women as he proceeded to rape them again and again and again. Hopper was sure that the knife he was using actually came from their own knife set in the kitchen. Based on the description of the knife, I had to go check out the knives in my kitchen. The great big butcher knife was about the right size according to my tape measure. Calibu was also charged with burglary, but that seems more like an afterthought for him based on his actions. It was almost like he suddenly remembered that maybe he should steal something as he was taking a break from the unbelievably high number of rapes. He stood in their bedroom, leaning against their dresser, watching them as they huddled on their bed, begging for him not to hurt them. The light coming through the window behind him lit up his shadowy figure and he was visible to Hopper. He asked them if they had any money, but they told him they didn't. They explained to him that they didn't have any cash, but he should take whatever he wanted from their purses. Calebu continued to reassure the women, telling them that he would not hurt them. But according to court documents, he also told them, quote, unquote, not to get too excited. This was just round one. After making this statement, he continued to assault Hopper and Butts by alternating between the two and raping them both vaginally and anally. During these rapes, Butts began to resist and Calebu threatened to cut her with the knife if she didn't stop. Hopper thought that Calebu had ejaculated inside of her during one of the many rapes. There had been 10 separate rapes so far. According to court documents, she was hopeful that he may have left evidence behind when he wiped himself off with Butts' khaki shorts that were at the foot of the bed. He then raped both Butts and Hopper again 
orally, and raped Hopper again vaginally. While Kailbu was raping Hopper again, Butts started to resist and fight back. Kailabu ordered Butts to stop resisting. In fact, Hopper also pleaded with Butts to stop resisting. Hopper was terrified that Kailabu would get angry or angrier than he already was. But it was too late. Kailabu must have been filled with rage because he then raped both women anally with his fist. Using his fist would most certainly cause severe tearing, bleeding, and excruciating pain. The savage, evil cruelty he exhibited towards these women with this act is incomprehensible. To see your loved one being raped, to be raped yourself, would have been pure torture. The psychological torture of having to worry about not just your own safety and survival, but that of your partner, the love of your life, it's unimaginable. But Calebu isn't done yet. Once again, he is ordering both women to give him oral sex. Then he raped Hopper again, vaginally. During this rape, the tip of the knife touched Hopper's arm and she cried out as if in pain. She stated in court documents that, quote, even though it didn't hurt, I said, ouch. And Calebu apologized and said he was sorry, unquote. This gave Hopper a false sense of hope. She was thinking, hoping, praying that maybe he's not a murderer after all. It's not clear exactly what happened next, but according to court documents, Calebu said to Butts, quote, unquote, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Hopper also asked Butts to stop whatever she was doing so she wouldn't make Calebu angrier than he already was. After so many rapes, yet still hoping to get out alive, Hopper said, According to NBC News, quote, It was like, you want to be still, she said. I just didn't want to aggravate him or do something that would make things worse for Teresa. She said she believed her attacker was a rapist who would leave, unquote. Calebu is not done terrorizing these women. With the knife still in hand, he forced Butts and Hopper to lie down on the bed on their backs side by side. Then he climbed on top of them with his knife in his right hand and his arm over Butts to hold her still while he began raping Hopper again, vaginally. Hopper described how she and Butts did their best to let their arms touch in an effort to communicate, to say to each other, I'm here, to say I love you. It was all they could do. This rape of Hopper was the last sexual assault, but Butts and Hopper don't know this. Butts and Hopper have been subjected to so many rapes by now, and so many vicious rapes, and now Calebu is escalating his violence and beginning to cut them. Hopper wasn't sure what happened next, but she heard Butts ask Calebu why he was cutting her as she tried to push him away. He continued with his threats to kill Hopper in an effort to subdue her. His strategy of using the women's love for each other against them worked well for him until the end. He unexpectedly forced the women up and out of the room. As he guided them into the middle bedroom, he turned on the lights so he could get something out of his jeans, which he had left on the bed. 
As he retrieved what looked like a small pocket knife to Hopper, she could also see his face in the light. It was then that she realized he was going to kill them. Now he is armed with two knives as he takes the women back to their bedroom, ordering them back up onto their bed. They continued to plead for their lives as Caleb climbed up on the bed with them and pinned them down with his knees. Not knowing what he's going to do next, they both start to resist and push back. In the struggle, Hopper can hear Butts cry out, quote, unquote, You got me! You got me! You got me! Eli Sanders reported for the stranger, Hopper recounting her thoughts when she could hear Butts yelling out, quote, I remember thinking, no, 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 no. We were supposed to get to leave. We were supposed to get to go. She can't be dying. The man was slashing and stabbing me too. He just cut, 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 cut. And I remember just feeling the blood coming down. Some of the blood just spurting up and out. And I remember thinking, this is it. There's no way I can have my throat slit and live. There is no way. There's just no way. The next thing I remember him doing was switching his hand from a cutting motion to a stabbing motion." The women did not stop resisting, even though they are very badly injured. Hopper, in order to stop the frenzied attack, was going to stop fighting and play dead, but Butts found a strength that Hopper describes as quote-unquote, a powerful surge of energy. They both continued to resist and fight back while Calebu continued to cut, slice, and stab at the women. A powerful surge of energy must be a pretty accurate description because Butts, who is barely five foot two, miraculously forces Calebu off the bed. Calebu, in turn, punched her so hard in the face during this struggle that he actually fractured three of her teeth. There's an intense struggle and Butts gets her hands on a metal bedside table, which she used to push Caleb back. Then she used the table to smash through the closed bedroom window and went scrambling through it, over the broken glass, landing outside on the ground. She gets up, runs out to the curb before she collapses. Remember, she makes her escape from Caleb and the house after having sustained injuries that will eventually kill her. While Butts was desperately trying to escape out the broken window, Hopper was yelling and screaming. In fact, she can be heard screaming on the 911 call made by the next door neighbor when she heard the breaking glass and screams. Now it was just Hopper and Caleb in the house. By now, Caleb knows that he needs to leave before help arrives. Fortunately, he makes his run for it without attacking Hopper any further. He and Hopper looked at each other one last time, and then each one bolted out of the house in different directions. Hopper ran out the front door, but her hands were so covered in blood they were slipping on the doorknob, and she struggled to open the door. She did finally manage to open it and get out of the house. Caleb escaped the way he entered through the bathroom window. Outsmart Magazine reported, Once Hopper got the door open and made it outside, she was, quote, covered in blood, begging neighbors for help. Butts collapsed in front of the home, telling a neighbor, 
He told us if we did what he asked us to do, he wouldn't hurt us. He lied. He lied. The Stranger magazine reported that, quote, the firemen would try to get Hopper to sit down on the curb to stop her screaming. But she wouldn't sit down and stop her screaming. Not after what happened. Not after all that silence. Not anymore. A part of her knew Butts' fate. Still, she shouted into the night. Even if Butts couldn't hear her anymore, maybe someone would hear her. I love you, Teresa. Fight. 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 Help arrived soon after the 911 call. In fact, there were multiple 911 calls. Jennifer Hopper was transported to Harborview Medical Center. Harborview specializes in trauma care, and the worst of the worst cases are brought here. It was stated in court documents that her condition was not immediately life-threatening. I, on the other hand, find it extremely difficult to understand how she can still be alive. Hopper sustained multiple severe lacerations. She had two long straight cuts to the inside of her left arm between her elbow and her shoulder, four lacerations to her neck. One of the cuts actually transected her external jugular vein, which is very close to the carotid artery and can cause significant bleeding. She was taken by ambulance to the Harborview emergency room covered in blood. Fortunately, a plastic surgeon was able to repair her cuts. Teresa Butts had suffered at least eight cuts across her throat, a stab wound that severed her left bicep muscle, a blunt force injury to her mouth which caused three fractured teeth, and another deep stab wound that penetrated the left ventricle of her heart. The stab wound to her heart was the fatal wound. Butts never made it to Harborview. Instead, she died right where she collapsed, in front of their house, on the street, by the curb. In conclusion, on July 19, 2009, Isaiah Caleboot broke into the home of Teresa Butts and Jennifer Hopper, assaulting, raping, terrorizing them for approximately two hours. By the time he made his escape, he had murdered Teresa Butts and attempted to murder Jennifer Hopper. He left in his wake a bloody carnage and a heartache so deep that it feels palpable to me today. He was arrested a week later and charged with the following crimes. Count 1. Aggravated murder in the first degree of Teresa Butts. Count 2. Felony murder in the first degree of Teresa Butts. Count 3. Attempted murder in the first degree of Jennifer Hopper. Count 4. Rape in the first degree of Jennifer Hopper. Count 5. Burglary in the first degree. Each charge included an allegation that Caleb was armed with a deadly weapon. Counts 2 through 4 included the aggravating factor that the defendant acted with deliberate cruelty to the victim. Count 5 also charged that the crime was committed with sexual motivation and that the victim of the burglary was present when the burglary occurred. Caleb left a ton of DNA and other evidence all over the place. 
This included his fingerprints, footprints, palm prints, blood, and semen. He left DNA on the khaki shorts he used to wipe himself up with after raping both Butts and Hopper, the jeans he was wearing when arrested, and blood left on the bathtub and the bathroom window he used to climb into the house and then escape through. Two years later, in a King County courthouse in Seattle, Caleb was convicted and found guilty on all counts. On August 12, 2011, he was sentenced by Superior Court Judge Michael Hayden to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The judge also imposed an additional 98-year prison term, which Caleb would be required to serve in case an appeals court rejected his life sentence. Eli Sanders calls Jennifer Hopper the bravest woman in Seattle. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his feature article titled The Bravest Woman in Seattle. His coverage of the murder of Teresa Butts and attempted murder of Jennifer Hopper is amazing and extremely comprehensive. Based on everything we know about the harrowing experiences of that horrible night and the subsequent courageous testimony by Jennifer Hopper, it is easy to confirm this sentiment. Additionally, I think we can honestly say that two of the bravest women in Seattle are undoubtedly Jennifer Hopper and Teresa Butts. In the show notes are links to the articles by Eli Sanders and the essay by Jennifer Hopper. Thank you so much for joining me once again on Crime Happens.